Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, Chris, had a quick question yes. for you before we get started on okay. um, this week's episode. Uh, you remember, we uh, one of the first episodes we did was Japan Airlines Flight 123, and we said that that was the uh, the deadliest single plane incident uh, yes. in history. And that, that happened, you know, when the uh, vertical stabilizer got blown off of that plane. It happened near cruising altitude for that plane, around 24,000 feet in the air. Mm -hmm. uh, today we're going to be covering the deadliest multi-plane incident. Oh. Since the single plane incident happened at 24,000 feet, I was curious to know if you had a guess as to what altitude the multiple plane incident took place. Um, hmm. I bet it happens during like 5,000 or whether they're taking off or landing. Yeah, what if I told you that the deadliest incident ever on record happened on the ground? What? Yeah, March 22nd, 1977. A terrorist attack has shut down Grand Canaria Airport in the Canary Islands, causing all inbound flights to divert to Los Rodeos Airport in Tenerife, a Spanish island off the western coast of Africa. Once Grand Canaria Airport reopens, all the diverted flights at Los Rodeos are eager to get back in the air. KLM Flight 4805, a Boeing 747, finishes refueling, taxis down the runway, and turns around for takeoff. Captain Jacob Welthuizen van Zanten begins to accelerate down the foggy runway when the unthinkable happens. A Pan Am 747 is taxiing down the runway directly at Captain Van Zanten's plane. Captain Van Zanten desperately tries to get his plane airborne, but he doesn't have enough speed. The two planes collide, causing the worst aviation incident in history, killing 583 people. What series of events could possibly lead to two jumbo jets being on the same runway heading towards each other? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, it's Gus and Chris. How you doing, yeah, Chris? Yeah, they car crashed. They car crashed. They, they hit each other on the runway. Oh my god. Two jumbo jets, two 747s collide, causing the worst aviation incident ever. This, when we did our, our episode about crew resource management a couple episodes ago, we kind of alluded to this incident. This is the incident that really set in place crew resource management. Those other ones with the light bulbs kind of like cemented the fact that uh -huh. crew resource management needed to be a thing. But this was the incident. Like this is such a terrible accident. This really changed a lot of things as far as like crew resource management, the way the tower communicates with planes, the need for ground radar at airports. I mean, this this yeah. changed so many things because so many people died needlessly. Yeah, because it's not like something went wrong in the air. Something went wrong on the ground. Right. Like, I mean, if you're on one of those planes, like one of those planes, the Pan Am plane, they're taxiing, getting ready to take off. You don't think that you're going to get no plane crash when you're taxiing, <laughs> yeah. right? Like that, that's the last thing yeah. in your mind. The other plane was rolling down the runway. You think, okay, maybe something bad will happen. You don't think you're going to crash into another plane. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, a terrible, terrible incident. And I think it's compounded by the fact that the Japan Airlines flight was a 747 and that was the deadliest single incident. This is two 747s that collided. Oh. So, I mean, that's just, you know, a side effect. Like, these planes can hold so many people, and then you have two of them involved in an incident. It's just, you know, it just multiplies. It's like the two biggest planes crashing into each other? The two biggest planes at the time, yeah. Now we have yeah. the A380. That would be, I can't imagine if two of those hit each other. Uh, so, as always, uh, I encourage people to follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at BlackBoxDownPod. And, of course, you know, uh, tell a friend, recommend this podcast, give us a good rating, leave us a comment. Whatever you can do, help get the word out there. Yeah. Okay, so we've got two different planes here. So I'm going to give background on both of them. I'll do my best to try to keep them both uh, uh, separate and, and be very clear about which one we're talking about. So the first one was KLM Flight 4805. And this was a charter flight for Holland International Travel Group. And it had flown to Los Rodeos Airport from Amsterdam. 
and its crew consisted of Jake. I'm I'm, I'm going to do my best with the name here. Jacob okay. Wilthuizen van Zanten, who was 50 years old and had 11,700 flight hours, and he was KLM's chief flight instructor, which gave him super high seniority in the company. Yeah. The first officer was Klaas Meurs, who was 42 and had 9,200 flight hours. And they also have flight engineer Willem Schroeder, who was 48 and had 17,031 flight hours. So all of them, tons of experience. Mm -hmm. The plane was carrying 235 passengers and 14 crew members. This was the plane that was starting to try to take off. Okay. Uh, The next plane, Pan Am Flight 1736, was the one that was taxiing down the runway. So Pan Am 1736... Uh, was a flight that started in Los Angeles. It had a stopover in New York before making its way to Los Rodeos. While it was in New York, a new crew took control of the plane, and that crew consisted of Captain Victor Grubbs, who was 56, with 21,043 flight hours, First Officer Robert Bragg, who was 39 and had 2,796 flight hours, and Flight Engineer George Warns, who was 46 and had 15,210 flight hours. This plane had more people. This plane had 380 passengers and 16 crew members. Yeah, tons of people. How many were in the Japan flight? The Japan flight, uh, that was a domestic flight. And uh, I remember it was within Japan itself. That one had fatalities of 520 people. Oh, that was a huge flight, but they didn't have double. They didn't have two, there was only one. Okay. This one, uh, like I said, was 583 people. So this had 63 more fatalities. Okay, so like I said, both these planes and the Japan Airlines, like these these were Boeing 747s. And uh, a little bit of trivia about this particular plane, this Pan Am uh, 747, it was... The 747 that was used in the inaugural commercial flight of 747s back in January 22nd or 1970. So this was the original 747? Right. It was like the premier one, like the the inaugural, like, yay, here are the 747s. We can fly them now. It was also the first 747 that was ever hijacked. It was going from uh, JFK Airport in New York to San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, Do you want to guess where it got hijacked to? Uh, To Cuba. Cuba. It was hijacked to Havana in (laughs) August of 1970. Uh, if you listen to our History of Hijacking uh, episode, you know that a lot of these planes were hijacked and taken to uh, Havana back then. Okay, so that's just background. The actual incident itself. This was March 22nd, 1977. Both of these flights were actually meant to go to a different airport. They were supposed to go to Grand Canaria Airport, but when both planes were en route to the Canary Islands, there was a terrorist attack at that airport. At 1.35 p.m., a bomb was planted by the Canary Islands Independence Movement separatists, and it exploded in a terminal of the airport, injuring eight people. And before the explosion had gone off, there had been a phone call warning of the bomb. And then afterwards, a second phone call was made warning of a second bomb. Oh. So the authorities decided to shut down the airport until, you know, they had the situation under control. So as a result of the airport being shut down, all of the flights were diverted to Los Rodeos Airport on Tenerife Island, which was about 60 nautical miles away. Mm. So there were a ton of planes that got diverted, and that included, you know, both this KLM flight and the Pan Am flight. The Pan Am flight actually asked the tower if they could just circle the airport until it was safe to land because they had plenty of fuel. Uh, they had enough fuel to circle for two hours. Yeah. But they were still diverted anyway. Yeah. They're like, no, we don't know. It's a bomb threat. Yeah. Right. The KLM flight landed first, and then uh, the Pan Am flight landed around 2.15 p.m. And this airport they diverted to, the Los Rodeos airport, wasn't very well equipped to handle this influx of traffic. It only had one runway and one parallel taxiway, and it had four little connecting taxiways between them. You can think of these as like... Uh, off ramps on a highway. Gotcha. Okay. So basically it's like one long runway, a taxiway running next to it, and four off ramps yeah. connecting the two of them. I'm also thinking in terms of whenever we played uh Sim Airport. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And all, all of our airport management skills, that's a 
if if you want to watch us play sim airport, it's at roosterteeth.com. <laughs> it's uh we we try to make the the world's best airport. That was also a mall. That was also a mall. I think we do we do an okay job. Yeah. So when the KLM plane landed, it was first decided the passengers were all going to stay on the plane. But then after about 20 minutes, they decided to go ahead and let the passengers off the plane and wait in the terminal. Mm-hmm. The passengers on the Pan Am flight stayed on the plane the whole time. Okay. Eventually, the authorities reopened the Grand Canaria airport and the Pan Am flight was ready to take off. You know, they had all their people still on the plane. They were ready to go. Wait, so which one? The Pan Am kept the passengers on, but the K- KLM let them off. Okay. So the Grand Canaria airport reopens. Pan Am still has all its passengers on the plane. And they're like, great, let's take off. Let's go. But because this, where they are in Tenerife, the airport wasn't equipped to handle all this traffic. All the planes that were diverted to the airport were parked on that taxiway. And all the departing planes would have to do what was called a back taxi. So basically, since the taxiway was filled with planes that were, had been diverted there, in order to take off, a plane would have to taxi down the runway, do a 180-degree turn, and then take off on the runway they had just taxied on. Gotcha. So the Pan Am flight, like I said, was ready to leave, but they couldn't. Because that KLM plane was blocking their path. Mm. The KLM flight had decided to refuel as long as they were on the ground. They were going to try to save time. They figure as long as we're here on the ground, we may as well refuel. But Pan Am really wanted to go. So the first officer and flight engineer get out of the plane and they look. They try to measure to see if they can squeeze by. What? But there wasn't enough room. They were about 12 feet short. They're just trying to squeeze by? Right. They're trying to see if there's enough room, but there's not. The KLM flight's in front of them, blocking them. It's refueling. So, you know, they have to get back in the plane. They have to wait for KLM to finish refueling. It took about 35 minutes for them to refuel. And when they were all done, the passengers were allowed back onto the plane. However, there was a Dutch family of four who they couldn't find and they had to be located and brought back. So they had, you know, they're still stuck there on the tarmac waiting. Mm-hmm. Then there was a tour guide for the travel group who actually decided not to get back on the plane because she lived in Tenerife. Uh. So she was like, oh, okay, you know, this is where I live anyway. I'm just, I'm not going to get back on the plane. Um, potential spoiler, she's the only person from that plane who survived. Yeah. So the Los Rodeos airport is located, it's in a valley, about 2,000 feet above sea level at the foot of the third largest volcano in the world. I mention this because when both planes landed, the conditions were good and the sky was clear. But while the Pan Am flight was waiting for KLM to be done refueling, clouds had rolled down off the volcano and started covering the airport. Oh. Yeah, the thing is, you know, with these clouds rolling down, the visibility can vary greatly. You know, one minute it could be totally clear and you could see fine. And the next you have your visibility way, you know, cut way down. But the KLM plane was ready to get going, finally at 4.58 p.m. Initially, they were instructed to taxi down to the third exit, then taxi down the taxiway, and then hold short of the runway. Uh, but then the controller told them to taxi down the entire runway and make a 180-degree turn and report back when they were ready for takeoff. Hmm. Uh, the KLM flight read this back, but then asked the tower if they were supposed to exit on the taxiway, to which the tower replied negative and repeated the instructions. The KLM crew responds with, okay, sir. And uh, the crew was probably a little distracted by, you know, completing their checklists and they got a little mixed up with the instructions. They're in a hurry to take off because they're delayed. Uh, A couple minutes later, at 5.02, the Pan Am flight called the tower asking if they could taxi down the runway. The tower cleared them to do so and instructed them to exit the runway on the third taxiway. So basically what they're setting up here is they're sending KLM all the way down, telling them to turn around. And they're telling Pan Am to follow them, but then to exit onto the taxiway. Okay, so they're like... To get in line, essentially, behind the other one? Exactly. So then KLM asked the tower to confirm how many taxiways they had passed. The tower responded they were at the fourth taxiway. KLM responded with, okay, at the end of the runway, make 180 and report ready for ATC clearance. The tower then advised both planes that the runway centerline lights were out of service and reiterated that the Pan Am plane should exit at the third taxiway and report when leaving. Mm -hmm. So while the Pan Am plane was taxiing, 
and the KLM plane was at the end of the runway, the cloud density, like I mentioned, it varied greatly. The Pan Am crew were in super dense clouds and they could only see about 330 feet in front of them. Oh, no. But the KLM flight at the end of the runway could see 3,000 feet down the runway and the cloud was coming towards them. Oh. So this runway is about a little over 10,000 feet long, just under two miles long. So that's why the Pan Am crew had such little visibility, but the KLM flight could see more. It's because the runway is so long and they're both on it. Yeah. The Pan Am flight is recorded acknowledging the first and second taxiways, but they missed the third one. They drove past it? Right. It's possible they missed the exit because of the visibility, but it's also possible they missed it on purpose because it was at a weird angle. They would have to have turned basically backwards at 148 degree turn to turn onto that taxiway. Like that taxiway was angled for planes going in the other direction. Okay, I yeah. It's like if you were driving the wrong way down a freeway and then you tried to take an exit. You know, you have to, yeah. have to turn almost all the way back. So they were, what was their plan to miss it on purpose and what? The speculated they were going to take the fourth oh. taxiway, which was in the correct orientation. Gotcha. Because like I said, the one, the third one they're supposed to take was 148 degree turn. The next one was only a 35 degree turn. Oh, yeah. And in fact, a study done by the Airline Pilots Association concluded that the turn onto that third taxiway they were supposed to take, it would have been practically impossible. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Like, if maybe they didn't see it, but maybe if they did see it, they were like, there's no way we can make that turn. Yeah. Spanish authorities said that the reason this taxiway was chosen by the controller is just because it was the earliest that they could turn off without any obstruction. Yeah, so the tower control was just like, there's the closest one, go. Not thinking about the angle. Right. There are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them, and some of you may have even used a VPN before. But you know me, I like to do research on our sponsors. I only recommend brands to our listeners that I believe in, and I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market, and uh, here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Uh, Second is speed. Tried lots of VPNs in the past. Many slow your connection down or make your devices sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for, I guess, about a year now, and my internet speeds have been blazing fast. Even when connected to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. And the last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. You just fire up the app, click one button to connect. It's so easy, I bet even your grandparents could use it. And it's not just me saying that. Wired, The Verge, CNET, many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that I use and trust. Use our link at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown today. Get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say, sure, then you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your conclusions about what's happening even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest, and I mean, there's something for everyone, really. On one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. I got a couple other ones. There's one he did a couple months ago with Tony Hawk. Uh, There's one in there with Danny Trejo, uh, who's been in a ton of movies. I'm sure you recognize him. Uh, Super interesting. 
And Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. These episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. Uh, we really enjoy the show. We think you will too. Just search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, check it out. So all this is going on, like any incident, it's it's complicated, right? There's a lot of movie pieces yeah. going on here. I'm trying to I'm trying to outline it as as much as we can. So I'm, I'm going to read a conversation that takes place now between the controller and the two planes. Uh, first, the KLM plane says KLM 4805 is now ready for takeoff, and we are waiting for our ATC clearance. The tower replies, KLM, you are cleared to the Papa Beacon. Climb and maintain flight level nine zero. Turn right after takeoff. Proceed with heading 40 until intercepting the 325 radial from Las Palmas VOR. So basically, they're just telling them, like, once they're cleared for takeoff, the directions they need to go. Yeah. The KLM flight response, Roger, sir, we are cleared to the Papa Beacon, flight level 90 until intercepting the 325. We are now at takeoff. The tower replies, okay, stand by for takeoff. I will call you. The Pan Am flight uh, chimes in. They say, Clipper, uh, Clipper is the call sign for Pan Am. They say, uh, Clipper 1736, the tower replies, uh, Papa Alpha 1736, report clear of the runway. Pan Am says, okay, we'll report when we're clear. The tower says, thank you. They're just saying, we're clear to go, you're clear to go, wait for us to say go. Right, so what's happening here is KLM is, is, is telling the tower, we're ready to go. The tower mm -hmm. says, okay, when you do take off, this is what you're going to do. KLM says, okay, they repeat it back. Then they say, we are now at takeoff. The tower says, okay, stand by for takeoff. I'll call you. Then hearing this, maybe Pan Am worries. They're just like letting everyone know, hey, we're still here. We're still on the runway. Mm -hmm. And uh, th then Pan Am says, we'll report when we're clear. Tower says, thank you. Gotcha. Problem though. Uh, when the tower told KLM to stand by for takeoff, the signal was blocked. <gasps> when the tower was giving this instruction, the Pan Am plane made their radio call at the same time, and it caused a three-second-long shrill sound, which is known as a heterodyne. It's kind of like a beep in the cockpit of the KLM flight. So the KLM flight didn't hear it because they were talking at the same time. So as a result of this, the KLM plane actually starts its takeoff roll. The transmission from Pan Am saying they will report when clear was actually still heard inside the KLM cockpit. And after the Pan Am said that, the flight engineer in the KLM flight expressed concern uh, by saying to the first officer and captain, is he not clear, that Pan American? To which the captain responded, oh, yes. And the, he continues his takeoff roll. Wait, so he said, wait, is that plane still in the way? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's gone. Well, so what he, what he said specifically was, is he not clear, that Pan American? To which the captain responds, oh, yes. Maybe like dismissive, like, oh, yes, he's clear. Uh huh. But again, it's not clear, right? Yeah. Like when, when uh. you're reading this, you're like, what does that mean? Why would they talk this way? This, not, this isn't normal. So at this point, the Pan American flight is approaching the fourth taxiway exit when the captain says, there he is. And down the runway, they can see the landing lights for the KLM flight, and they realize that that plane was approaching takeoff speed. The captain on the Pan Am plane shouts, God damn, that son of a bitch is coming. And the first officer yells for him to get off the runway. Oh, so the, he sees him. He's like, oh my God, that plane is driving. Yeah, they see the lights, like through the clouds and through the oh, fog. No. They see the lights coming and getting closer. Wait, so which, is that the one that's like, has less? The Pan Am plane has more people. Okay. So they're just taxiing at this point. It's the KLM flight that's starting to take off, coming right at them. Mm -hmm. So the captain of the Pan American flight 
they're the ones taxiing. He applies full power to the throttles and he makes a sharp turn to the left to the grass. Like he's trying to get off the runway. He, you know, yeah. he needs to get out of the way. It's like you're driving down the road. You see someone coming head on at you. You turn off the road, right? You, you get onto the grass to try to yeah. get out of the way. Uh, but by the time the KLM pilot saw the Pan Am flight, it was too late to stop. The pilots on the KLM flight, they rotated early trying to take off, which caused the nose to rise and it caused a 72 foot long tail strike. So basically they tried to pull up and they just started dragging their tail along the runway. Okay, so they saw the plane and they're like, oh shit, pull up. And then, but they're not, they don't have enough speed. So they're just like dragging. Like right. Like the nose is starting to go up and uh, the tail is just dragging along the runway. Uh, the KLM flight is 330 feet away from Pan Am and it's moving at a speed of 140 knots. And the speed they need in order to take off is 160 knots. So it's like, uh, they're close, but not quite. The nose landing gear of the KLM flight actually clears the Pan Am plane, but it wasn't enough for the engines, the fuselage, and the main landing gear. Uh, and then they all hit that Pan Am 747, just ripping it apart. So the Pan Am flight had started turning. So it, was, it wasn't head on. It was like at an angle because it was trying to turn off to the left. But the KLM flight just comes over it and rips it apart. Uh, the KLM flight manages to briefly become airborne. But the outer lift engine was just sheared off the plane and the wing was badly damaged. It went into a stall and it hit the ground about 500 feet past the Pan Am plane and slid for a thousand feet. The fuel on board caused a huge explosion and the fire sustained for several hours. And both airplanes obviously were destroyed as a result of yeah. this. And all 248 people on the KLM flight died, as did 335 of those on the Pan Am flight. Out of everyone on both planes, there were only 61 survivors. And all 61 survivors were on the Pan Am plane. Yeah. Oh, man. Most of the Pan Am survivors uh, were actually able to walk out onto the left wing because there were holes in the fuselage. The captain, the first officer, and the flight engineer all actually managed to survive. And the engines of the Pan Am were still running for a few minutes after impact. And they couldn't be turned off because the top of the cockpit had been severed from the plane. And that's oh where the shutoff God. controls were. The top? So, like... Is that like when you cut that, like an animal gets its head cut off, but the body's still running around? Uh, in a, that's a morbid <laughs> way to put it. But yeah, I guess I guess that is that is true. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the KLM flight had just ripped the top of the Pan Am plane off entirely. Oh. Well, not entirely, but it ripped it off and done a significant amount of damage. Uh, so like I said, the survivors, you know, went out under the wing of the Pan Am flight and they were waiting for rescue. But it didn't come right away because... The fire crew was initially unaware that there were two planes involved in the incident. Oh, my God. Yeah, the survivors had to jump off the wing from about 20 feet in the air. I actually read an interview, or not read, I saw an interview with the first officer for the Pan Am flight. And uh, in that interview, he states that the crew had to jump to the ground from the cockpit. And if you've ever seen a 747, the cockpit is really high in the air. It's above the wings. Yeah. I mean, that's what, like 25, 30 feet? Probably, yeah. I think in the interview he said it was 45 feet, but I, that seems too high to me. But regardless, either way, it's, it's a, it's it's, a <laughs> yeah, you do not want to be jumping that high. So um, a total of 583 people died in this accident, making it the deadliest aviation accident in history. And it happened on the ground. The people were in, in, in the air. So like I mentioned earlier, the captain of the KLM flight was highly thought of at the company. And he was one of the most senior pilots there, as well as their chief of flight training. I've even seen he appeared in print advertisements for the airline. Like he was that well known. He was like the face of the airline. Like if you, you were flipping through a magazine, you saw a KLM ad, there was a chance you would see him in the ad. Yeah, because he's like the dude. Right. And in fact, when KLM heard about the crash, they initially wanted to send him to the crash to help with the investigation. What? And then they realized, oh, no, he was the captain of the plane. Oh, my God. The Los Rodeos airport was closed to all fixed wing aircraft for two days. And the initial investigators arrived at the island by boat. The first plane to land there after the accident was a U.S. Air Force C-130 that had to land on the taxiway on March 29th. 
the C-130 transported all surviving and injured passengers from Tenerife to Las Palmas. And uh, the airport, Los Rodeos Airport, finally fully reopened on uh, April 3rd. Jeez. So in talking about this, it seems very cut and dry, right? Like mm-hmm. two planes, one hits the other. But still, you have to, there has to be an investigation. What series of events led this to happen? Why, you know, the KLM flight, they were ready to take off, but they didn't have clearance to take off. You know, why did they start their takeoff roll? What led to this, this accident happening? So investigators found that the captain for the KLM flight was eager to complete the flight as quickly as he could. So until a few years before this accident, the captain of Dutch Cruise was able to extend the limit of his cruise activity in order to complete service at his discretion. But there was a law changed, and the Dutch aviation had a strict time limit set for flight crews, and it was forbidden for the captain to exceed this time limit, and it was punishable by prosecution under the law, and a pilot could even lose their license for exceeding the time limit. Basically saying you can't make your crew do overtime too long right you know, they want to prevent crew fatigue yeah and you know they were, this, this is an effort to try to keep people safe but you know in this case the the captain was worried about it and was trying to rush until december of 1976 it was easy for a captain to adjust the time limit based on some factors but by the time this accident happened the calculation that needed to be made was more complicated and it was easier to call the company to determine if the time limit would be an issue So, while they were on the ground at Los Rodeos, the captain called the company and was told that if they took off by a certain time, then they would be fine to complete their tasks within the time limit and there would be no problems. So, the captain, basically, he had a time limit. He was eager to get going and decided to start the takeoff roll without full and clear confirmation that it was approved. Oh, my God. Side note, I've seen some speculation. I don't think we talk about it in depth, but I've seen some speculation that the captain of the KLM flight had been doing training for several months leading up to this incident. And he had been training new pilots in, uh, in simulators. And some people speculate that because he had spent so long in simulators where you don't have to wait for ATC clearance, that he'd gotten a little rusty with that. Huh. That, again, like that's not something you can quantify. Yeah, yeah. There's, that's just like... It's, yeah, it's like, Who knows? it's like maybe that was a contributing factor as well. So I'm only going to mention that in passing. Like maybe he had spent too long. Because, you know, in a simulator, you're like, okay, we're ready to take off. Let's just go. You don't have to worry about ATC giving you clearance on a runway. Anyway, just something to keep in the back of your mind as well. So the fundamental cause determined by the Spanish Investigations Commission was that the KLM captain uh, to take off without clearance and his desire to leave as soon as possible in order to comply with the KLM time regulations. Some other factors that contributed were the sudden fog that limited the visibility of the two flight crews and the tower interference on the radio that resulted in KLM not hearing the tower's transmission to not take off. And also, there's that ambiguous phrase. I don't know if you heard it. When KLM read back the instructions, at the end of their instructions, they said, we're at takeoff. And the tower's response of, okay, also contributed. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Pan Am didn't exit at the correct taxiway they were supposed to. And also, the airport was being forced to accommodate more traffic that it was designed to handle. Like, all of these are contributing factors in it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot here. A whole there's lot. A, there's a lot. It's um, like... This is like that. It's like, oh, the fog swept down, but only covered up one plane. And then the other one, it's like, oh, he, he took the wrong exit. It's, it's like all these tiny little things. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, that's what we see a lot of times in these incidents, right? It's like sometimes it's like, oh, very clear. It's this one thing. This one, it's like, well, this happened and this, you know, there's clouds. There's a captain who's eager to take off. There's ambiguous phrasing. Uh, this Pan Am plane didn't exit on the taxiway it was supposed to. There's more planes than there should have been. Uh, the KLM flight had to refuel. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just this culmination of things that led to this uh, happening at this exact moment. So at first, when the Spanish report comes out, the Dutch are reluctant to accept it. Uh, they accept that the KLM captain had taken off prematurely, but they argued that he was not the only one to blame 
and there was a mutual misunderstanding between them and the tower controller. And the Dutch had a few points of their own that they wanted to make. Uh, They said that the crowded airport put extra pressure on all parties involved, which makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, The sound of the cockpit voice recorder suggested that during the accident, the Spanish tower crew were watching a soccer match and they may have been distracted. (gasps) Oh. Yeah, so that's... There's no way to verify that. I mean, obviously, they say that the cockpit voice recorder suggests this. I've seen other reports that dismiss this claim. This one's questionable. But, you know, obviously, the tower needs to be focused on their task at hand. Especially on a day like this where they're having tons of planes. It's like a cluster of right. mess, you know, like they're not used to this. Right. Uh, another point they had was the transmission from the tower where the controller passed KLM their clearance was ambiguous and could have been interpreted as also giving takeoff clearance. And the Dutch investigators even pointed out that the Pan Am crew thought that this might have been a takeoff clearance as well because they responded saying they were still on the runway. Mm, yeah. And the fourth point is the Pan Am flight had taxied past the third exit. And if they had not done so, the collision would have not occurred. So they've yeah. got some valid points in there, right? I mean, there's, there's blame to be shared. Yeah. Uh, then the Dutch authorities were reluctant to blame the flight crew, but, you know, the airline ultimately accepted responsibility and they paid victims of the family's compensation ranging from 58000 to $600,000, which is... 245000 to $2.5 million today. And the total sum of settlements was $110 million, which is equivalent to $464 million today. Mm. It's also speculated that the crew of KLM did not want to challenge the captain in taking off because he was a high-ranking senior pilot and highly respected in the airline. Because he was the, the magazine captain. He's the magazine captain. He's the trainer. Like I said, when airline learned about this accident, this is the guy they wanted to send to investigate. Yeah. Uh, and again, this kind of plays into what we've talked about before with crew resource management and making your concerns known and not being afraid to challenge someone who's senior to you. Yeah. It's also speculated that the reason the flight engineer reacted to the tower's uh, transmission to Pan Am was because he had completed his checklists and the captain and first officer were still working on things and wanted to get done before the visibility worsened. So basically, the flight engineer was done with his checklist, and then maybe that's why he's the only one who noticed that transmission. Oh. Also, the Airline Pilots Association concluded that the KLM crew might not have realized the transmission of the Pan Am because the controller said, Papa Alpha 1736. It's the only time the plane was addressed that way. Because, like I mentioned, their call sign is Clipper. He should have said Clipper 1736. Why did he call him Papa Alpha? P-A, like Pan Am. Oh. I was like, it's some sort of Papa? Yeah. So, yeah, he said Papa Alpha instead of Clipper. So it's just unusual. It's not standard. Yeah. And finally, the decision for the KLM crew to get fuel allowed time for the clouds to roll in. And the additional fuel added over 40 tons of weight, which required a longer takeoff roll. And the extra fuel increased the intensity of the fire that led to the deaths of the passengers. Yeah. So, again, these little things add up and make things worse. So, Some changes that were made after this accident included better regulation of phrases and language used in communication. Aviation authorities around the world introduced requirements for standard phrases and had a greater emphasis on using English as a common language. Communication between uh, the tower and pilots now must be more explicit, Uh, like more clear, not more like sexually explicit or anything. (laughs) No more Papa. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no Papa. Uh, So the instructions can no longer be responded to with just an okay or a roger. They have to have a readback with key parts of the instructions to show mutual understanding. And the phrase takeoff is now only spoken when the actual clearance is given or when clearance is canceled. And until that phrase is ready to be used, the word departure is used in its place, along with the phrases hold short of runway or line up and wait. Gotcha. So they're very explicit. This is what you say. Right. It's like you you have to make sure you're very clear and that everyone understands what's happening at any given moment. 
And like I mentioned, this is the accident that helped pave the way for crew resource management. Like this is this is when they realized like we need to have a better series of communication in the cockpit amongst your crew to avoid misunderstandings and to make sure if there's a problem, everyone understands that there's a problem. Yeah. So in 1978, a second airport was opened in Tenerife that was designed to handle the majority of international flights, and the Spanish government installed a ground radar system at Los Rodeos Airport, which is now known as Tenerife North Airport, so that controllers can have better visibility of where planes on the ground are located at all times. Because didn't you also say some of the lights were out on that runway? Yeah, the center line lights were out. So like the lights going down the center of the runway were out. Okay. Which would be helpful when there's low visibility. It's like, that's what yeah. <laughs> that's what they're supposed to be there for. Yeah. A Dutch national memorial and final resting place for the victims of the KLM flight is located in Amsterdam at Westgard Cemetery. And there's also a memorial at the Westminster Memorial Park and Mortuary in Westminster, California. In 1977, a cross in Rancho Bernardo in San Diego, California was dedicated to 19 of the area's residents who died in the crash. And in 2007, the 30th anniversary marked the first time that Dutch and American next of kin and aid helpers from Tenerife joined in an international commemoration service held uh, in Tenerife and Santa Cruz. Man. Uh, Also, just as a note, I feel like I should say this, the Canary Islands independence movement denies any responsibility for the accident. Because they're the people who bombed the the other airport in the Canary Islands. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like the people who did the bomb, like they killed so many more people indirectly right then they, than they their... deny responsibility but ultimately their actions did lead to this incident yeah like if they hadn't done the bomb threat and bomb then it's like that wouldn't have happened and that it's like that butterfly effect or whatever mm-hmm. yeah we didn't even talk about that in like the series of events that led to this incident yeah this is like another one of those things yeah i mean we can re- like you can really start unraveling things like what if they had allowed the pan am flight to circle for two hours yeah or what if that one family hadn't been lost (laughs) right and like all these little things add to like this happening at this exact moment and there seem to be you know a lot of these moments where decisions were made that could have affected this outcome it's 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 frustrating right i mean there's so many tiny little things i mean even the controller deciding to let klm taxi all the way down the runway instead of exiting like he initially said yeah there's just so many things to wonder about so that pretty much covers the entire incident but there's a little side note that uh i felt like you know we should we should Uh mention here there's a condition in aviation known as uh get there itis it's when a pilot has the urge to complete a flight regardless of training instincts or outside variables uh, get their itis is the cause of a lot of deaths and accidents, mostly in general aviation, and it's a super serious threat. And it seems like, based on what we've heard and what we've seen here, the captain of the KLM probably was a victim of get their itis, which was causing him yeah. to make unsafe decisions, to start takeoff before he should have. And uh, it's something that, you know, pilots constantly face and, you know, that has to be dealt with. You know, you really have to think about, like, is what I'm doing safe? Is this the right thing to do at this time? You know, rely on your training and rely on your experience instead of just thinking, no, we have to get this done. Yeah. Is it common at all for planes to crash on the ground? Or is this just a very bizarre kind of circumstance? Nowadays, it's really uncommon. But you do hear every now and then about planes colliding on the ground. Uh, then normally, it's not this serious. And almost, I, don't, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of another incident like this where it happens on the runway during a roll. Mm-hmm. But you know, lots of times when planes, you, you see how crowded it can be at an airport. Yeah. And all the planes are at the gates. You know, every now and then, planes will back up into each other. It's like a car in a parking lot. Yeah. They'll a, back up into each other. It's or, bumpers bumping. It's like, oh, shoot. Right. Uh, except let's trade insurance. <laughs> the like, deductible on that's a lot <laughs> higher. <laughs> and normally that'll cause a flight to be 
canceled because they'll have to get a new plane. Like once a plane touches another plane, it's like, well, great, now you have to inspect it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I, he- I feel like I hear about planes bumping into each other maybe once or twice a year. I don't, I'm not. It's not something I keep up with all the time, but yeah. I feel like you hear about it every now and then. But it's mm. definitely something that uh, should not be happening. So that's uh, I mean, I, I I don't know what to call it. It's two planes involved. That's the Tenerife incident. Uh, it's the the worst incident ever in aviation in civil aviation and happened on the ground which is just awful yeah so uh, this is another one of those that uh is super huge in the industry caused a lot of changes and it's another one that i'm, I'm super fascinated by because it's the thing that always fascinates me in incidents is like when things break down we always talk about the process and how safe things are it's like this was just the culmination of many different things breaking down until you end up with a horrible incident yeah uh, as I always, I want to remind everyone, you can follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, share it with a friend. Give us a good rating. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. If you know anyone, uh, what, what should we tell, tell a friend uh, who speaks Spanish Yeah, <laughs> to, to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. Not only Spanish, though, because it's, we're in English. But Oh, true. Yeah, were, it's in English. Make sure they speak English, too. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is uh, we're gonna take a little break, take a couple of weeks off. We have to do some more research, find some more incidents to uh, to cover. We have uh, one more episode coming out. It's uh, a supplemental episode that we're gonna record live at RTX. If you're listening to this episode the day it comes out on uh, September twenty fourth, twenty twenty, we're doing a live reading at RTX at three thirty p.m. Central Time. Uh, you can go to rtxevent.com if you'd like to uh, join in and listen to us record an episode live. But that episode will be released as supplemental content in a couple of weeks. So uh, we'll be taking a couple of weeks off uh, besides that to uh, find some more incidents. And uh, hopefully we'll be back in just a couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Tell all your friends in the break. Tell them. This is the time to listen. You got 20 episodes to go back and listen to. Yeah. 